Hello, and welcome to The Supporting Cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Greg Gonzalez, Director of Financial Aid at Harvard-Westlake. Greg grew up in the Montebello area of Los Angeles before attending Columbia University for undergrad and then Columbia Journalism School. Greg had a long career in journalism before turning to education, eventually finding his way to Harvard-Westlake as a history teacher for more than 20 years at the school before just a few years ago becoming our director of financial aid. Financial aid is an area very important to me personally. I would not have been able to attend college were it not for financial aid dollars and is a big reason why I do what I do at Harvard-Westlake. So I found this conversation particularly meaningful uh, and I learned a lot about our program and a lot about Greg. This is The Supporting Cast. So you are director of financial aid. Correct. At Harvard Westlake. And I guess my first question is, financial aid, there was a time where it was considered charity, sort of financial aid at schools, maybe like Harvard Westlake or universities was considered a form of charity. How do you consider financial aid? Something tells me you consider it differently. Yeah, exactly. I think you're absolutely correct that it was considered a favor that the school would do to students. Uh, a sense perhaps of noblesse oblige, mm -hmm. giving a gift from on high to the unwashed. Uh, and as a product of some generous institutions from high school all the way through my master's degree, yeah. I always felt like that the students were making schools better. And perhaps that was a biased opinion on my part. <laughs> uh, but I'd like to think that I added value to the schools I attended and when I came to Harvard-Westlake, uh, financial aid was really in the shadows. It was, how, and how do you mean? Well, it was confidential that the fact that a student would be on aid was kept uh, completely confidential from teachers so that no one knew who was on aid and no, no one knew who wasn't. I think the intentions were good. I think the right. idea was that we wanted all of our students to be the same and everybody should be treated the same. But one thing I did learn from Tom Hudnut was treating people fairly doesn't necessarily mean treating them the same. Mm -hmm. So I th always thought in my earlier time here, in my different iterations as a teacher, as a dean, as a coach, uh, and then finally really as a parent, I understood that that financial aid was an essential part of the school and it allows us to attract and enroll a more talented student body. And when Rick asked me to consider becoming the director of financial aid, I thought it was time to bring it out of the shadows. I thought it was time to celebrate the achievements of our students, which the school had already been doing in events such as the Spotlight Dinner. Mm -hmm. But on a day-to-day level as far as awareness we were still cloaked in confidentiality and i think some of that confidentiality creates a stigma hmm. around financial aid that there's something wrong with it if you really can't tell anybody about it 
So when I became director, I thought it was time to, number one, form a student group mm -hmm. to discuss these issues openly, which for the first time, I'm very proud to say, for the first time in our school's history, we have a financial aid, we have, we call it our, the financial diversity discussion group uh -huh. and students who are on aid and who are not on aid are welcome to come and talk about financial issues at our school. And how's that gone so far? It's gone great. The, you know, I always say when we're in a tough spot, the students save us. And I think this is another great example. I was really kind of nervous about it, like how would, you know, would anybody ever come? Right. Would people self-identify? Exactly. Yeah. And this year, last summer, I invited 18 students to, 18 students that I happened to know through teaching. I invited them to come and just discuss these issues openly. And 12 of them showed up on a Friday afternoon out of their summer. And the first thing that came out was from them was, I'm so glad that I'm not the only one. Huh. And it's so great to see so many different kinds of students from so many different backgrounds, both ethnic, both sending schools, uh, any way you could look at it. It was a very diverse group in, in, in the, the truest sense. And how do they feel about what you're talking about? So they are they in agreement that uh, it should be brought out of the shadows and that, that people should self-identify more? Or are there students who like the fact that there's more anonymity? I think... At this at this age, I think at the teenage level, we should give them the option right. that they can identify if they'd like and that if they would prefer not to discuss that, then that's totally fine. And that's one thing we talked about at the beginning was there's no pressure where, where no one is forced to go to any meetings. Of course. And But what has come out of it is that they are eager to learn about how the school works, how the financial aid program works. David Wheel came to a student meeting and discussed the role of financial aid in the entire school budget, which huh. was very enlightening yeah. for the students. And the budget, I should add, is more than $11 million It's now $12 million Twelve. now. Uh, wow. $12 million, which is the number two line item budget in the entire school budget. Behind faculty salaries. Behind faculty salaries. Salary. Right. So yeah. that's how important it is to the school. And that is the commitment I feel not only from David, but also from Rick Commons. I think the other important thing that's come out from the students is to form, the, to actually form a support group for other students. And one of the first things they said was at the middle school, they really felt isolated because huh. they, you know, the school, I mean, you have to look it up. I mean, I don't know if a seventh or eighth grader is going to actually look up on a website that 20% of our students are on aid. This year we have 315 students on aid. Uh, to ask a seventh or eighth grader to do that or have an awareness of that, I think, is a lot. Mm -hmm. So at the middle school, they reported that they felt alone, that they felt that there was something different about them. Yeah. And so the upper school students will visit the middle school this coming semester, and they will invite any students who want to go and just to discuss these issues with middle school students. We're not sure how it's going to go. They are younger. They might be a little more self-conscious. But I think the more those students are open about it, then I think the the greater number of discussions we can have and the more welcoming and inclusive we can be of everybody, yeah. regardless of their ability to pay full, full tuition. Another thing the students are doing is they will speak to the upper school faculty, I think, on March 17th and mm -hmm. to the 
middle school faculty on April 21st. Hmm. Directly. Directly. Yeah. So uh, we'll have a student panel, which has been a really good format to get the student's point of view. And hmm. I'll also discuss a little bit about our financial aid program yeah. and how it works and that our, for example, our supplemental aid program, yeah. I think is is uh, one of the best in the country. Rick, well, let me say it, it is the best. <laughs> well, can you describe <laughs> for it? For a day school. That's yeah. something I wanted to talk to you about because we think of financial aid as tuition assistance Correct. traditionally. But um, as I know, but maybe not everyone knows, that financial aid reaches far beyond just tuition assistance to every aspect of student life. Uh, I mean, you, you you can talk about it, right? Whether it's student trips, whether it's uniforms, bus fare, uh, lunch card, um, you, you could see a student who has more modest resources coming to the school. Yes, they can come to the school, but they aren't able to really invest in the life of the school in the same way a full-pay student might um, because of their limited resources. But we, at least to the best of our ability, it sounds like, are able to close that gap. Absolutely. Well. That's one of the things we're most proud of. We have a available for each student on financial aid, there is uh, about $6,300 worth of supplemental aid, hmm. which goes towards some essentials like books, all required course materials, all required club team and group materials. Uh, transportation is provided at a ratio of a student's aid. Mm -hmm. And there are other opportunities such as uh, study travel, so basically anything that the school offers in its program is available to all students on financial aid. No student on financial aid must pay extra for anything that is directly related to any single course, which happens sometimes. Yeah, of course. Uh, so, you know, let's say that the um, it'll happen in something like a music course where they'll need a special a music book, yeah, which could be very expensive, and yeah. and so that sort of thing would be completely covered by financial aid. I think the other way we do it is, as I mentioned, through uh, opportunities for study travel. Yeah, students can apply for study travel, and the school will partially support, usually based on a student's rate of aid, will partially support study travel. For example, last year or this year, uh, every year, the seventh grade goes on a trip to Washington, D.C. Uh, George Gaskin leads trips to Europe. Um, and at the upper school, they do things. They'll, they'll study abroad during the summer. Last summer, we sent students to Costa Rica, South Africa, England, Spain, France, wow. Kenya, <laughs> and... Australia wow. on either leadership programs, community service programs, on education programs, yeah. and they end up going all over the world. Wow. And even domestic trips, right? The civil rights tour. Domestic trips. The, the civil rights uh, uh, tour led by Janine Jones right. is uh, partially covered by financial aid. So this is one way that every single student at the school can participate fully in what the, what the school offers. What about beyond what the school offers? I imagine I grew up without a lot of resources, but in an affluent area. So uh -huh. somehow I, I can, I think, relate to a bit of this. Is one of the challenges of those who are part of this cohort, this financial diversity affinity group on campus, is part of it, is part of the, ch the challenge, as much as we do try to do and you try to do for what is in class and out of class, is one of the challenges what happens kind of once they get home or on the weekends 
or on vacations? And, and how have you, what's the feedback you're getting from students about that? You know, I was surprised by that. I mean, having gone through that a little bit with my own daughters yeah. uh, who graduated from Harvard Westlake with the aid of financial aid, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I think they're they're more they're much more mature about it than than maybe even I expected. Huh. Where they kind of come and they said, "Yeah, we get it. Yeah, you know, some some families can do that. We can't." Uh, I think again, the upper school students reported that the great equalizer at Harvard Westlake is talent and hard work, huh. and that if they get into the school, then that they have a Get into Harvard Westlake. To get into Harvard Westlake, then there's that baseline of ability, yeah, uh, and a work ethic and and character where they know that they can have success here. Are there social situations where it comes up? Uh, sometimes after breaks, the students have talked about where they went on vacation. Where they went on vacation. Sure. Where you know some people hung around and watched. I don't know. I forget what they watch these days. Uh, <laughs> cheer is that the new one on cheer, Netflix? I haven't heard oh, of it's like, I think it's a cheerleading show on. Oh, really? Netflix. That's... I've missed that one. Yeah. I, believe I have, it or not, I have too. <laughs> believe it or not, I I don't have Netflix. I'm usually wow grading papers at night. I know. I think if if there is a way students feel different, I think that comes out more through their uh, ethnic background, their ethnic background. Yeah. Okay. Where how so? Well, just that. You know, there's a more visible difference, and that the, the, the stereotypes around that will uh-huh. will uh, hit them first before anything about finances. And also, I'd like to think that, and maybe this is hopeful, but our students are actually pretty mature and pretty aware of the financial diversity in Los Angeles, right? And that it, as far as Financial differences, I think that is less of a factor. And I think it's become. I think this group, hopefully, I, I don't know if it is becoming, but this group will help it become less of an important factor in school. That's great. That's great to hear. Yeah, yeah. Our our, our students are amazing. Yeah. So, Greg, where did you grow up? Grew up here in Los Angeles. Proud to say, I'm not one of those. Uh, Imports that crowds our freeways. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Born and bred. Right. Yeah. I, I grew up in Boyle Heights and Montebello. I still live in Montebello. Okay. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I stay, when I first came to Harvard Westlake, I had never even heard of Harvard Westlake. Yeah. It was introduced to me by a college uh, counselor, uh, really a college advisor, I guess. Hmm. And he said, you know, you should think about applying to Harvard Westlake. And I said, What's a Harvard Westlake? I mean, <laughs> which, even though I had, you know, I'd gone to high school here. Uh, and where did you go? To... I went to Cantwell High School, which is in Montebello. Okay. It w- then it was an all boys Catholic school. Ah. A lot of people call it the the Loyola of the East Side. Got it. Uh, and uh, or Salesian would be uh, another uh, similar school, another all boys Catholic school. It has since gone coed. Uh, in fact, it went co-ed the same year Harvard Westlake went co-ed oh, really? in 1992. Huh. And that was my first year in teaching ah. was at Cantwell, what was now what is now called Cantwell Sacred Heart of Mary High School. Got it. And what was your experience like there uh, in um, an all-boys environment? And You know, I was just happy to be in school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was uh, much different. It was... Uh, Ethnically homogenous, pretty much every there, everyone there was uh, Mexican American and mm-hmm. Catholic. 
So going off to college, going to Columbia University was a big eye-opener for me. Yeah. Uh, I had an older brother who went to Yale, hmm. uh, but I was, you know, until you go, you don't really understand. And, uh, you know, going to Columbia, going to New York was uh, definitely different. And But it really wasn't until I came back to Harvard-Westlake that I figured out, ah, though that was that's where the smart kids went to school, those kinds of schools. Because I, I remember being a first year in college, reading the same uh, homework assignments, yeah. doing the same work, and then going to an art history class and these kids saying, oh, yeah, you know, I know that and I know that. And yeah. I've studied that before. And I would say, how how did you – how do you know? I'm doing the same reading you're doing. Like, ah, I get it now. You went to a school like Harvard West. Right. <laughs> I had a similar experience. My right. Freshman year, I took a Shakespeare class, an English class, and was writing an essay that I thought in my high school would have been an A. You know, no problem. I know how to write an essay. I know how to write. And it was just marked up. You know, every line was right. marked up. And I said, oh, oh, you, oh, you want that level of, of writing. Oh, you, your expectations are a bit higher. Right. And, and it was an adjustment. And, and I think you're right. I think Harvard West like alums do not have to make that type of adjustment right. for the most part. It's a tremendous gift. Yeah. Tremendous so gift. were you, when were you aware of, first aware of financial aid then? Was it in high school or in college? Definitely in high school. Uh, yeah. My, I, I recall some some difficult times in the, my high school helped my parents out. Yeah. Uh, and, and what line of work were your parents? Uh, my dad was a business counselor for the LA Archdiocese. Okay. Uh, and my mother worked in human resources. Uh, neither one had a college degree, which is one of the reasons why they were uh, extremely invested in our education. Yeah. One thing I'm extremely grateful to them for. Oh, yeah. And you have just one brother? I've got uh, three brothers. Oh, three brothers. Uh, and a sister. Oh, uh, so wow. I'm the youngest of five. Wow. Uh, all of whom my parents sent to university. To college. Which is a tremendous for uh, achievement. I know. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Um, were there teachers in high school or uh, yeah, there were a couple Columbia who, yeah, who you um, can point to that helped to influence you? I think uh, in high school there was a teacher. You know, I don't know how much time you have. I had some great teachers. Uh, Jim Moran was my honors English teacher, and he was just you know he was one of the reasons I when I first became a teacher, I thought I want to be like Mr. Moran. I mean, he just was why so, what did he do? Such a such an inspiring storyteller. Mm. Uh, he knew so much. He was interested not only in his subject but also in the students. Yeah. He showed uh, – one of, one of his, I think, so fundamental but one of the most amazing things about him is that he would learn everyone's name in one day. And this is a class full of 35 people. Wow. Next day. It's a big class. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he – Knew, would immediately learn people's names and what they were interested in. And I'd like to, you know, he he met us where we were and, and took us places we never thought we could go. That was, he was just such a, such a smart, invested and caring man. Um, my high school counselor, George Flores, was, uh, I'm, who I'm still in touch with. I'm also in touch with Mr. Moran. I'm, I'm closer to Mr. Flores. I still call him Mr. Flores, which bothers him. <laughs> uh, he, uh you know, he he pushed me uh, and also was uh, very instrumental in exposing this new world to not just me, but my brothers and my uh, and my classmates in college. Um, my first year uh, English teacher, Jennifer Friedman, hmm. 
uh, really taught me how to write. And, you know, I, I remember I had a very similar experience to yours getting this essay yeah. that was bleeding red. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what happened with, with me. Yeah. So. And, uh, you know, and she let me rewrite it. Right. Which didn't happen in all of my classes, which is why my, you know, not proud of my first two years GPA. <laughs> <laughs> but she allowed me the the ability to uh, or allowed me the opportunity to rewrite things uh, for a reduced grade. But uh, she was very patient with me. I think my German teacher, my third year, Susan Lota, was mm. an incredible linguist. Mm. Um, so you took German in college. Took German. I took I took Spanish and German. I took oh, Spanish okay. in high school. I love my Spanish classes so much that I took German as well. Wow. And, uh, and uh, I just, I mean, just the, I think the ability to connect with students and be passionate about the subject is what makes those people special. Um, what was the rest of your college experience? You were a journalism major or no? It was a history major. History major. History major. I played uh, football and I ran track ah. in, uh, in college, which was a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> what position did you play in football? Uh, I started as a receiver, kind of flanker, and then I became a defensive back and I returned punts and kicks. Oh, wow. And what about, what was your event in track? Track was a sprinter, so the 400 down mostly. Got it. Uh, that was, that was a, a great experience. I ended up being, gosh, let's see, uh, I held a school record for 13 years. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that was... Uh, in what event? In That actually was the indoor 500 meters. A wow. A very, very popular event. <laughs> got it. Um, <clears throat> Congratulations. That's thank great. you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I think... Do you a, still run? I swim now. Oh, you swim now. Okay. I swim. I've converted from land to water. To water. It's, yeah. <laughs> a little easier on your joints. Really, and, and it's uh, to run, you know, the warm-up time entailed, uh, warm-up and warm-down is a little longer. So I can get in and out of the water in an hour, and I'll be fully fully exercised. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So then you graduate from Columbia, and where right. do you go from there? I went to Columbia uh, Journalism School. Oh, got it. So you were there for your master's exactly. in yeah. journalism. Exactly, So okay. I started... One of the great journalism schools in the country. An amazing journalism school. Uh, I was looking for a job. I was just sort of aimlessly looking for a job, and I just felt like I just can't see myself on Wall Street, and I was interested in schools, but I didn't really know how to get into that. And I bumped into somebody who said, well, what about journalism school? I had worked on radio and television as an undergraduate. Huh. I didn't work on the school newspaper, hmm. even though I had done some of that in high school, because I didn't have time hmm. because of class and because and of sports. sports. Right, yeah. sure. So I thought, yeah, what the heck, I'll, I'll apply. And I remember borrowing money to make the application. And wow. uh, I also remember an extremely generous grant that allowed me to to go to grad school. Wow. And that was that was great. I ended up working for the New York Daily News in an internship. I worked for the LA Times. Uh, I was a full-time sports writer for a while. I covered cops and robbers in New York. I covered uh, municipal stories here in LA. Wow. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of the start of my career was in journalism huh. and actually not. And you did some radio as well. You were saying I was, well, we so started. my specialty in journalism school was radio production, which is a lot like being a coach because you, the, the producer, radio producer, at least when I was doing it, yeah. this is back to, in the real to real days, <laughs> but a radio producer sort of organizes the newscast 
and they assign they assign reporters, they assign stories, and it was a lot like coaching. And so we would produce a radio show on Saturday afternoons called the Columbia News, which probably I don't know seven or eight people listen to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we took it very very seriously, and we Good. were on the air at three, and uh, we pretty much worked on that show the entire week. And it was fun. It was exhilarating yeah. to put people into place and to get have remotes come in. And uh, and that was fun. That was a lot of fun. And I would have actually taken a job. I I had a job offer with the Dow Jones News Service in, in radio uh-huh. uh, back in the late 80s. And I also had an offer with the LA Times to start an internship with the LA Times. Yeah. And the way it worked out, I could either go home and live for free with my parents or I could struggle and uh, live in the, the wilds of New Jersey. So I came home. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Well, if you have any tips, given your expertise in radio production, if you have any tips about the supporting cast after we finish All or right. after you listen to it. <laughs> You're doing great. I'm You're open. Doing, especially with totally no notes, open. Eli. I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. <laughs> um, Unless they're behind me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then you come back to Los Angeles. Yeah. And what do you do? How do you find your way into teaching? Uh, so I was in journalism for five years. Yeah. I, I worked for the LA Times. I worked for a paper called the National Sports Daily. And then it uh, the paper very apt – I always consider it a very apt metaphor. The paper folded. Hmm. <laughs> Got it. We were right at the start of the internet. Yeah. And – we just couldn't quite get the platform. It was a it was a national uh, newspaper. I covered the Angels. Hmm. I covered college football. I covered some pro football. I covered the Dodgers. Uh, my my hometown and, and beloved Dodgers yeah. once, which was plenty because I just I didn't want to be that objective about the Dodgers. I wanted uh, to, you know. I remember as a journalist, you yeah, have to be objective. And you, you couldn't <laughs> exactly. It was hard. I, I'll never forget seeing Fernando Valenzuela, my boyhood hero, yeah. in the locker room at uh, Dodger Stadium, and I was just Star, awestruck, starstruck, starstruck. And I didn't want to ruin it. I didn't want to ruin my childhood, so I just walked right by him. I didn't even talk. <laughs> didn't, didn't say hello. Uh, uh. <laughs> I just. Uh, I couldn't do. I said hello to Vince Scully. I remember shaking Vince Scully's hand. Yeah, but I. Uh, it was much easier to cover the Angels for me. I could be much, much more objective, objective about the Angels. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the yeah. paper folded. Paper folds. So then I uh, was kind of freelancing around, and I went to go see the football coach at my high school, just to say hello. Yeah. Uh, he he wasn't my coach, but I, I knew him. He was a graduate of the school, and I knew him through. It's a very small community. So we're talking for a while, and he said, well, what are you doing these days? And I said, well, I'm freelancing. I just got laid off, and um, I was laid off. I should say in, in fairness, I was laid off before the paper actually folded, but everybody got laid off. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it no, wasn't ju- no judgment. No judgment. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Although I will say this about journalism. It, it does teach you to take your lumps. Yeah. Because after that, I was freelancing, and you know, you'll pitch a story, and – They'll say, well, that's not good enough. I was applying for full-time jobs. The LA Times told me, sorry, you're just not good enough. And then in the next breath, they would say, can you freelance a story for us? So you really have to swallow a lot of yeah. pride as a journalist. Yeah. And, but it's a creative field, and you got to expect that. It makes you tough. It's good for for uh, for teaching. you got to hold up to those students. Yeah. So um, the football coach asked me, what are you doing these days? And uh, I said, I'm just kind of freelancing. And he said, have you ever thought about teaching? And huh. I thought, yeah, I guess so. You know, I'm kind of a school guy. And 
he said, okay, let's go talk to the principal. And so we talked to the principal and he said, do you have a pulse? Can you fog a mirror? I said, yeah, sure. I guess I could. <laughs> and so they hired me to teach history and English. And I was at your alma mater, at my alma mater, yeah. uh, which was merging with an all girls school. Ah, okay. Very difficult situation. Early nineties, early nineties. Yeah. Uh, and I, um, I was the athletic director. I was teaching two sections of English, two sections of history. I was an assistant varsity football coach. I was the JV girls basketball coach, and I was the head track and field coach. Wow. Yeah, I was busy, you know. Uh, I just told you on the way down here that I was busy, but different kind of busy. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Um, but it, it was it was great learning experiences. It was great to to do that. And, uh, but I was gonna, I was gonna keel over before I was 30. So I took a break from that and then I went back into freelancing mm -hmm. and that's when a college advisor, literally out of the blue, Jim McMenamin at, uh, at Columbia, who's still there. He's amazing. Jim McMenamin called me and said, Hey, how's it going? What are you doing these days? He says, are you, um, might you be interested in a job at uh, a private school in Oklahoma and at the <laughs> Hall and Hall, huh. uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And a friend of mine had, it was a great school. And I said, well, actually, you know, at the time I was, my wife and I were courting and um, I said, well, actually I'm probably going to stay in LA. And he said, oh, well, you should think about Harvard Westlake. And I said, what's Harvard Westlake? What's Harvard Westlake? Yeah. <laughs> and that's how I was introduced to Debbie Reed. Ah. And that's how I ended up at Harvard Westlake. Wow. And so you were teaching history. Correct? I was at the beginning, I was actually teaching uh, English. I, ah. I started at Harvard Westlake as a middle school English teacher. Ah, okay. And then um, it just kind of went it, from there. Did lots of different there. things. Yeah. And how many years did you teach before moving into financial aid? Uh, gosh, let's see. 23? Wow. Yeah, 22. But I was always, always connected to it in some way because I was always involved in outreach. I was always yeah. involved in, in financial it. aid. Yeah. Well, uh, it just admissions outreach. Right. And oh, I see. so part of, you mentioned, you know, growing up on the east side of LA, part of, I felt my mission here was to expand our, our reach. So I would actively seek applicants from all over the city. I ended up carpooling a lot of students here to school I think uh, I went to an event at your home many years back. Right, you probably did. I yeah, <laughs> one of them. There was an outreach yeah, sort of event for the school. Exactly. So I did lots of lot, lot, lots of those sorts of things, and you know, I sort of found myself when I became a dean. I found myself I would connect with students on that sort of level. So I was always connected in some way to uh, students on financial aid and to outreach, and then. I came to the upper school as a football coach. I was still coaching football um, for all of this time. Came to the upper school as a football coach. I was the varsity football coach for three years. Amazing experience. And then um, that ended, that chapter of my life ended. I became a full-time history teacher. Right. <laughs> uh, and then my daughters came to school here, which was another way to connect with financial aid and with some of their friends, some of whom were and some of whom weren't. And so I got a broader view of the school. Yeah. And then a couple of years ago, Rick thought, well, you know, you have such diverse experience. This might be a, a good next step for you. Yeah. And so what has been, I don't know if you can, if there's a particular story 
obviously keeping in confidence the the uh, identification of the family or the person, or uh, is there an example of a, a situation that you've been able to help administer in your role that has been most meaningful or memorable to you just in these last few years as director of financial aid? Well, it's um, I think last summer, and there are a lot. I mean, I could go on forever. <laughs> uh, I think last summer we sent a student to a leadership program. Yeah that was uh, funded by a very generous gift uh, of a parent. Mm -hmm. And he just blossomed in that program. And he went, I think he developed confidence and he developed not, not just skills, but an ability to to swim in any kind of pool. Yeah, uh, He's graduating in a, in a few months and he's on his way to a great uh, university. Um, and I think that's just one example uh, where, A, without the the gift uh, that funded this leadership uh, grant uh, or, or leadership program, it, that couldn't have happened. And also, you know, he and I have become close yeah. and I've, I've helped him in particular situations. Uh, he, his parents are going through a tough time. We're able to uh, help him uh, with smaller things. And I think you know, that feels really good. It feels really good. And, yeah. and he is a leader on campus in, in many – he's an athlete. He's, he's a leader in, in several student organizations. Mm -hmm. And our office made some of those things possible. Yeah. I think, you know, he would, he would be a success in any, any area, in any arena. But I think we really put him in a place where he could succeed, where he could flourish – and he is rewarding us by just being such a great student. And, you know, I told him at some point you're going to be helping us on the, or tell somebody else <laughs> yeah. on the other side. I mean, that's one – I think that's one I think is uh, – that really I'm, I'm very proud of our office. Is there an awareness – I know for me as a recipient of financial aid throughout college and I don't think I fully realized until maybe toward the end of college or right after that, oh, these, these resources aren't just here because of magic or because – my university's a great old university or my or Harvard Westlake's this institution, Harvard Westlake have been around for a hundred years. There's actually people who I had never met, who these students never met, who decided to invest in a place and in some people to enable something like this, a, a leadership program over the summer um, or student assistance funds, which help to fund all of those extras uh, beyond tuition. Do you think there is an awareness among students of that larger effort, or is it something that sort of comes later? And did it come later with you? I think, well, for me personally, it came very early. Uh, I remember being named a, a Jacoby Scholar in college, mm -hmm. and we actually met uh, the donor ah. of multiple, multiple, I guess, I don't know if there were scholarships or financial aid. Uh, so that that came very early. I think also... In college, uh, there was a big controversy over divestment. Columbia University uh, had it had invested in apartheid. Or that, exactly, that whole they thing. had some investments connected to South Africa. Right, and I was sort of placed in a situation where I could object to the university, but I also was receiving uh, funds to attend the university. So I didn't close a building down. I, I 
you know, it, it's something I, I still think about. Whenever when I was teaching U.S. history and I would talk to our students about student activism, and mm -hmm. I would tell them the story. Like, you know, here's here is a time where I didn't quit school. I didn't uh, block a building. I didn't chain myself to any doors. Yeah. Um, because I feel, didn't feel like, you know, I, I had actually met the person who was funding my education. I didn't yeah. think I could do both. Yeah. Uh, I did object to that policy. I, I voiced my objections to that policy with with uh, with administrators, um, but I, I didn't, you know, take a huge risk. I didn't uh, quit school. Like, I didn't uh, take those actions. So I think I, I think I had an early awareness because of that. Yeah. Um, I think also because of my older siblings who had gone to school and I saw them going through uh, – financial aid forms and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, as, as far as Harvard-Wessick is concerned, I think that's one thing that the financial diversity discussion group can explore. Yeah. That, that the this comes from somewhere and that your office, the Office of Advancement, is really important and that their participation at I know that's not the reason for this, but no, no, this isn't a fundraising pitch, everybody. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think you know, it's important for them to understand that, it, right. even on a small level, that it, it takes a commitment. Again, it's like teaching U.S. history. When one of the ways that I think the easiest way to te to teach uh, diverse the importance of diversity is to talk about women in the political process in the United States, you know, from the founding of the Republic to the right for of women to vote is 140 years or so. Yeah. Um, and once women are allowed to vote, you increase el the, you increase the electorate by 100%. Yeah. And uh, but in order to do that, in order to grant the w women the right to vote, you have to empower the powerless. Yeah, and so in order to to grant aid to people who can't afford a full tuition at Harvard Westlake, it, it it's a it has to be a selfless act at the start. Although there's a benefit of attracting a wider talent pool. Absolutely, I'm not sure if that all follows. Yeah, with I mean, US history. Conceivably, <laughs> if, if everyone is voting, we're making better, more democratic decisions. Correct, as, as exactly. A country, and so I guess as I follow it, if the most talented people, regardless of resources, can come to Harvard Westlake, aren't we going to be a better school for it? Exactly. Right. Before we uh, leave. This uh, has been fun. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask a few. There's a few questions, uh, kind of get to know you questions. All right. There's three. They kind of relate to Los Angeles uh, because LA is known for uh, movies, we're known for food, and we're known for climate. And All so right. I have three <laughs> questions surrounding those. Uh, first, what is Greg Gonzalez's favorite movie? Hoosiers. Hoosiers, basketball movie. Yeah, Indiana basketball, very L.A. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. It's probably right. produced. Maybe, maybe that it was might... shot in Van Nuys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe because – it could have been shot in Hamilton Gym. Uh, yeah. Maybe because uh, some somebody told me – or I heard on the radio this morning, uh, it was, it's Gene Hackman's 90th birthday today. Oh, is that right? Yeah, my dad happy, is 89. Happy birthday, Gene. Happy birthday, Gene. Um, and my dad is 89. I thought, wow, he's just a year off of uh, – Gene Hackman. Oh, your dad's birthday is, is today? That, no, no, it's January, oh. January 12th. Same month. Oh, got, uh, it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> got it. Yeah. So who's yours? What is your favorite meal in Los Angeles? Wow. It could be at a restaurant. It could be something you make at home. It can be what's kind of your... I got to go with something at home, our classic carne asada. Ah. Do yeah. you make it? Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you make it on the grill? Or? Make it on the grill. Yeah. yeah. Grill it. Um, and uh, I, 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 I buy. We've tried doing our own our own marinade, but our local marinated um, ranchera meat uh, from Super A Markets. There's a plug for Super A. Okay. <laughs> All right. Is excellent. Uh, but we make our own beans, our own rice, and uh, wow, our own salsa. Yeah. Ah, and tortillas. And, uh, don't make our own tortillas. The, uh, the, this place that has the good carne asada also has, also, great, has has, also has great homemade tortillas. I'll bring okay. you some, Eli. That would be great. <laughs> you're, up, you're speaking my language. All right. Um, third, uh, what's your favorite place in Los Angeles? My favorite place in Los Angeles. Wow, that's hard. I, I'd have to say I think the Grand Central Library. Huh. Downtown? Yeah, downtown. Uh, the Central Library. Uh, it's just such a great place of learning and you know you walk in the atrium goes up six or seven stories yeah. and it's public it's a public institution where you yeah. you know where you don't need a penny to participate and yeah. these are public funds that are devoted to uh to learning i think i think standing in the atrium of the of the central library is just really an awesome experience awesome and looking up and i always when <clears throat> during research paper season one of the requirements for my students is to take a picture at a at a a library outside of Harvard Wesley. It could be a private library, um, but uh, it has to be a, a library outside of the school. I think I've always said libraries, schools, and newspapers are inherently good institutions. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> yeah. Um, last question. All right. You are the parent of two kids in their twenties. Um, I, I have a young daughter who is one. <laughs> so I have a ways to go, as we were talking about earlier. Keep her at that age. That's my uh, best advice. <laughs> yeah. What is what's your best parenting advice? Either that you've that you have as an original, or that has been passed along to you. I think my best advice, I think, is is time. I think just kind of spending time with them. Yeah. Uh, you know, it sounds like such a cliche, but. You know, you really don't get those moments back. How about how about two parts? I'd say spending time and writing things down, uh -huh. not just taking pictures. Okay. We have a family journal that we started when my older daughter uh, Bella was born. Yeah. Uh, who, by the way, is at Irvine right now. They're playing Redondo Union in the first round of the. She coaches the Harvard Wesley. Uh, she's the assistant on the girls' uh, varsity water polo. Team, ah, okay. And they're playing Redondo Union in oh. the first round of the Irvine tournament, which is the finest. High school water polo tournament in the nation. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so one thing with Bella is we started a family journal and we would write things down. We would write or paste things in everything from shopping lists to birthday parties huh. to their handprints. Wow. And it's a great visual. It's a, it's a tactile record. Yeah. Uh, photos are great, but actually having the yeah. receipt from Chuck E. Cheese. is <laughs> fun to look through. And the, name, and the names of the people... Uh, on the back. So that's, that's been a lot of fun. And, yeah. and then, you know, speaking of LA and, and traffic, it, sitting in traffic is terrible, but sitting in traffic with your kids is fun. Right. You know, we invented lots of games and I've been told that, that driving your child to and from school and, or to practice or to a friend's house is some of the best yeah. time you have with them. Yeah. So, you know, and, uh, so you have to embrace traffic. <laughs> Got it. And there's plenty of it, plenty, that's plenty true. to embrace. That's true. Greg Gonzalez, thank you so much. Thank you. This was a great conversation. I am so appreciative personally of the work that you do. And uh, thank you for joining us on The Supporting Cast. Thank you. Such a pleasure.